So um, uh, uh, this passage, when I was thinking about it, uh, the first question that came to my mind is, who do I find myself showing favoritism towards? Who do I show partiality towards in my life? And I think uh, pretty much in, in pretty much any place, it's, it's attractive and almost seductive to gravitate towards and to show partiality towards those who have the most resources, the most wealth. And it makes a lot of sense because if we do that, we think, well, maybe that'll, that'll rub off on me a little bit. Like maybe that'll improve my lot in life. And so it, it really makes a lot of sense to do that. And yet, here we have uh, this long passage where James, the half-brother of Jesus, is painstakingly making it clear that if you are a believer in Jesus, that this puts you at odds with your faith, that it actually faces you against the very thing that you say that you believe. And so that's a really strong statement that requires more investigation. So let's see how James can help us make sense of this counterintuitive idea of not showing favor towards those who have more wealth and more resources and how that uh, squares with a belief in the gospel. And in fact, he argues is a central piece of the gospel. So in verse one, he says this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So um, right, right out of the gate, it's clear what he's saying is favoritism in general is, is to be pretty much expected. But for you as believers in Jesus, you must not do it. You must not. He's saying like, you can't do this. If you do this, it is going to disrupt really important things in the life of faith, in the community of believers. So the first thing I wanna say is this is not a problem for just people out there in the world. It's a problem for people who are trying to follow after Jesus. It's a stumbling block. It's an impairment and an impediment to your faith. Uh, you know, I, I think about just, you know, growing up and being in school and kind of in middle school, you know, usually when like cliques start to form and stuff like that and, 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 and kind of wanting to be close to the most popular and influential people. It's just this sort of inescapable part of human nature to want to gravitate towards those, those people. And, and, and it's also so normal for us to make distinctions between people that we want to have more and less association with, but those things have consequences. I remember, <laughs> this says, I guarantee the person who said this doesn't remember this, but I remember being on a youth trip in high school, and I think we were, we were in Florida, 
And uh, you know, they have just like, when you go to one of the tourist towns in, in Florida, they have all this extra stuff you can go to when you get tired and sunburned at the beach. They had like a climbing wall and stuff like that, but it was like 20 bucks to do the climbing wall. I was like, I don't have enough money for that. And this other girl in the youth group goes, Jamin, you always run out of money. You never have enough money on youth trips. And I was like, dang, <laughs> man, you really busted me out right there, okay. Um, and, and the amount of shame that I felt was, was pretty intense as a 16-year-old as a uh, kid. And I, I remember being a little bit older, being 21, and, and I was so passionate and, and uh, inspired by my faith in Jesus. And I ran into a kid from high school, and he came from a much more well-to-do family than me. And we were, I was excited to see him. He was an acquaintance. He was always a pretty nice guy. And we were sharing about where we were in life. And uh, I was sharing about where I was in life. And, and when he shared, he, uh, after he heard from me, he said, you know, Jamin, it seems like you're kind of behind in life right now. And I was like, what? Uh, where, where did that come from? Okay, because I'm working my way through my undergraduate degree. I'm behind in life. Like, I, I, I like where I'm at in life. It feels good. I'm, I'm really proud of myself that I've even made it this far in, in my college uh, degree and that I'm paying all my own bills. He was, had graduated and had a good job at a bank and was engaged at the time. So for him, he, he saw those as markers of where each of us were in in this sort of race of life. And so these, these things happen in varying degrees all throughout our world and our society and um, James is calling our attention to these things to say these are really important to look at. Now, I'd gather that most of us, we grew up where in, in our faith, uh, the types of things we were told to focus on about what it meant to be a good Christian were things like the type of language that you use, like if you use swear words or sexual purity and things like that. But the things that James is incredibly focused on here is how we treat other people in ways that are counterintuitive to the way the rest, the rest of the world does. So, uh, and not to say that those other things aren't important. Uh, so he continues on in the next few verses here, starting in verse two, and he gives us a scenario to think about, to imagine and he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So this scenario, it's not as... It's, it's not a, a, a one-to-one for us, right? This is 2,000 years ago. It's pretty, pretty easy uh, to, to say, like, hey, this is not the typical thing. You know, a lot of us are in, like, T-shirts and polos and stuff like that. So it's obviously a little bit different type of situation here. But let's imagine, let's, let's take a moment to think about what James is saying and imagine what that might could look like in our life. So what, what he's saying is, you're distinguishing between somebody who has lots of resources and who doesn't, and then you're privileging that person with, with what's in your control to privilege them with, and you're dismissing the other person. 
who doesn't have those resources, right? And so I'm thinking about where does this happen in our world today? Where are the opportunities to do this or to undo this kind of thing? One of the battlegrounds for human dignity, which is what we're talking about here, is uh, the dinner table. Uh, The things that are talked about at home, who's invited into your home, whose homes are you willing to go into? And I think especially, um, uh, you know, the, the types of things that are said when the culture is, uh, is homogenous, when it's all the same people gathered around. So if your family is all the same race or all the same social class and you're getting together somewhere, it's the things that are said at those tables, the things that are allowed to go forth that become some of these battlegrounds of what, what are you doing? Who are you favoring in this scenario, in this situation? But most of the consequences of this type of favoritism doesn't actually take place there. There, There's a lot of other places because some of us would say, I don't relate to this passage. I don't find myself treating people that way just based on how they look, what they look like, like James is talking about here. Uh, But But at the same time, the way that our cities are planned and created, the way our school zones are demarcated, uh, the annexations of the city, the businesses we support and don't support, all put favor in certain places. And much more often than not, the decisions that we may or may not be aware of are favoring those who are already economically, upwardly mobile, who are going to be just fine if their kids go to this other public school. Um, But instead, there's all of these legislations and things passed and behind the scenes uh, foundations and nonprofits at work to make sure that my child doesn't get sullied with this other public school child. I mean, Memphis, if you look just a little bit in the history of Shelby County Schools and uh, Memphis City Schools, which no longer exists, and uh, our private municipalities, it's riddled with these type of decisions. And I know that this is a difficult and complex topic. Like, I know that it's like, well, Jamin, I didn't make those decisions personally, and I want my kid to go to the best school possible. I understand those decisions. They're hard. They're complicated. And I myself have to make them. I have three children, and two of them are in public school right now. And there are decisions that are being made um, there that are very complex. On, on top of this, uh, we we're bombarded with all types of decisions all the time. We're, we're bombarded with local news. We're, we're bombarded with all the news happening all over the world. And it's very difficult to know what to engage in when we're talking about this idea of how favoritism is meted out in our society and our world. And what I want to say is this, uh, We can't afford, if we want to further walk into a a live faith, a living faith, we can't afford not to pay attention to at least some of these things. You can't pay attention to them all. 
So here at this church at Christ City, we're drilling down and we're focusing on the issues of favoritism towards the rich and in neglect of the poor. And, and the reason why, part of the reason why James is doing this, this is, this is Jesus, this is the prophets. Our whole scriptures and traditions are saturated with the idea of caring for and prioritizing the needs of those who do not have what they need. So if you're here today, it probably means in some way you want a more robust, living, and active faith, that you want to know God more, that you want to be more deeply connected into the community of God. And what I want to tell you this morning is that your interest and your passion in these issues of favoritism are directly correlated to how much passion, how much connection, how deep you can know your maker. This is not a side issue. It's not just biblical social justice or some other side category. The Bible is filled with prophets standing up and saying, repent, you're religious, but you don't feed the hungry. Repent, you're religious, but you ignore the widows and the orphans. Repent, you uh, bring lots of sacrifices, but you don't take care of the foreigner and the sojourner. This is the Bible. And so I, I get so frustrated when I hear things that are counter to that, saying, well, you just need to focus on the gospel. Well, I'm pretty sure here in James, he says, look, man, you can talk all you want, but your faith is not gonna be alive unless you act with justice and mercy in the world. Oh, come on, silence. I know it's Labor Day. Somebody give me an amen. Somebody say something. I'm, I, I'm, I'm feeling amped about this a little bit here. Um, many of you know uh, who Brian Stevenson is. He's a widely acclaimed public, public interest lawyer who has dedicated his career to helping the poor and the incarcerated and the condemned. He's the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. It's a human rights organization right down the street from us in Montgomery, Alabama. And the things that they've done is they've, they've uh, won major legal challenges eliminating excessive and unfair sentencing, exonerating innocent death row prisoners, confronting abuse of the incarcerated and the mentally ill, and aiding children who are being prosecuted as adults. And here's a quote from him about how just easy it is for us to, to, to become numb to these things. He says, uh, we've all been acculturated into accepting the inevitability of wrongful convictions, of unfair sentences, racial bias, and racial disparities and discrimination against the poor. We've all been acculturated. It feels normal in our culture. I was watching a comedian, I think his name's Patrick O'Neill, and he has this bit where he's like, have you ever been watching the news and you just can't care? He's like, you know, on the news, uh, 30,000 Chinese people die in an earthquake. Oh, that's so, it's just, uh, that's so hard to care because we're, we're so bombarded with it. And yet right here in our city are thousands of opportunities to practice this. In fact, 
uh, we are in partnership with, with an organization called MICA. You're not going to stop hearing about MICA. Uh, it stands for Memphis Interfaith Coalition for Action and Hope. And MICA and uh, this Tennessee Innocence Project, this other nonprofit, I met with them recently, are together working on this case of a, they believe, and I believe, wrongly convicted man on death row. His name's Purvis Payne. Anybody heard of this free Purvis Payne? Um, and, and this man has been in prison for 30 years uh, under a death sentence, and he's got an intellectual disability. The, the, the murder that he's accused of, he had no motive for. There was evidence that was lost in the case. Uh, there's no record, he has no record of violence uh, or, or any arrests in his whole life uh, prior to this conviction. Um, the, the court cases used all kinds of stereotypes against black people to try to convict him. And people are saying, no, no, we can't just uh, allow these things to go undealt with unseen because this person exists on the margin of society as a poor disabled black man. This is central to the gospel because the gospel says each human being is made in the image of God. And that's why James is so angry and so frustrated and passionate about this because he says, when those two people walk into the room and you tell the one here, take the good seat in society and to the other one, sit in the dust by my feet. We deny the very truth that Jesus came to bring, that Jesus sacrificed his life to teach and show us that you cannot put a price tag that you cannot value a human being one to 10. As much as that sounds counterintuitive in so many realms of our society and world. You know, um, so, some people do believe that we have a, a, a really good justice system in the United States. But like I was, I was talking to um, my wife uh, about uh, some encounters that we had, and my wife is Caucasian, and and she said, "Well, I haven't, uh, I, I haven't, ex I haven't noticed any any racism from from this person or this situation." And uh, I said, "Baby, I'm just it's 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 a lot harder for you to see than it is for me." And so part of this demantling of favoritism is listening to different people. In fact, uh, the, the intellectual uh, short story writer, playwright, uh, and, and social rights, uh, uh, civil rights writer and activist James Baldwin said it this way. If one really wishes to know how justice is administered in a country, one does not question the policemen, the lawyers, the judges, or the protected members of the middle class. One goes to the unprotected, those precisely who need the law's protection most, and listen to their testimony. So before we go any further, I just want to give us all a really practical step that we can all take. I hate it when we have these kinds of sermons and, I, and I, I don't give 
anything really practical for you to jump into right away. And so um, in our partnership with Micah, there's this big public meeting coming up October 24th. Here's the details on the screen here. You can get to it uh, by going to micahmemphis.org forward slash calendar. And this public meeting, it's gonna be both online and in person. And you can sign up there uh, on the calendar there. And there are really uh, practical action steps being taken by this organization that we are taking part of in our church. Some of those things, I wanna give you a few of them because Micah has three main, uh, three main areas that they, that they attack for equality in our city, right here in our city. We're gonna stay focused on those things, okay? So the DA, Amy Warrick, is being asked to stop transferring children under 18 to adult courts who have, those children have not been charged or previously found delinquent of a violent crime. So there are children right under our nose and there are local Congress people continuing to keep this going and keeping it getting even more strict for children under 18, mostly poor and black, to be being tried in adult courts for nonviolent offenses. That's happening right in our city right now, all the time. So we're asking Amy Work to stop doing that. She's saying it's unconstitutional for her to do it, and yet there are several civil lawyers who disagree with her. Uh, Micah is asking at this event for expungement of criminal record and restoration of voting rights for persons convicted of nonviolent offenses upon completion of their sentences so that they can rejoin society, so that they can have hope for the future and be involved in society. They're asking to allow two youth Micah uh, delegates to participate in a search committee for the Memphis police, new Memphis police director. Uh, there's a couple more things uh, in the economic realm for First Horizon, the bank, to, uh, to work uh, with, with Micah with, for home loans for people who are poor and disadvantaged and small business loans and things like that that are notoriously scooped up by large, ultra-wealthy business owners in the city, even when they're allocated for small businesses. These are things happening right underneath our nose all the time. Favoritism towards the already wealthy and neglect and hostility to the poor. Um, uh, in education, uh, an organization called Youth Education Success, allocating $10 million of budget from the city's budget to them uh, as they work on various education initiatives. You can read all about that. There's a PDF there to read in depth on all of those and more that I mentioned. These will be addressed at that public meeting. It's things Micah has been working on for a very long time and will continue to be working on. And we have a, a missions team, and I don't care how new you are to Christ City, if this is your passion, join this missions team. Talk to Jake, raise your hand, Jake, or uh, Jordan and Abijith, raise your hand, Jordan and Abijith. You can talk to them. You could talk to Javier and Mariah here. They're all on our missions team, and Jake and Mariah are our delegates, our connection with Micah. So, yes, let's get back to the text. Verse four, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So this is James 2, 4. And I want to share with you this Greek word discriminate here and just what it means. 
uh, because there's, a, there's a, uh, multiple definitions of this word and what it means in our culture. Uh, so, uh, diacrino, and it just means to separate, to make a distinction, uh, to discriminate, or to prefer. And what I want to say about this is uh, we all have to make uh, we all have to make judgments and discriminate all the time. It's a normal part of being human. Like uh, women, when you're waiting to see which guy is going to come up to you and ask you on a date, well, you've already discriminated and judged. No, I don't like his hairstyle. No, he's picking his nose. No, he's, he's not my, my type, right? It's just a normal part of life, discrimination. But what James is saying here is really interesting because he's saying, have you not discriminated among yourselves? Among yourselves. So he's saying, he's thinking about and speaking to the specific context of the Christian community. And he's saying, you are making judgments about who you should prioritize knowing and being in relationship with based on what you can tell about their status in society. This is an act of faith to resist against doing this thing that is very attractive to do. It's very difficult for church leaders not to do this because a church is run based off of tithe. And so I ask our congregation not to allow our church to be run or to be uh, felt like we're on a, on a pedestal uh, about to tip over if one a wealthy donor leaves, that we all be generous, that we all see our, uh, our, uh, our funds, our economic funds as something to give to this community to build the kingdom of God. So the thing here is, is, James uses extremely powerful language here, almost inflammatory. He says, if you've discriminated among yourselves, you've become judges with evil thoughts. And you know what that word evil means in the Greek? Evil, that's what it means. Totally evil, like how you describe Satan in the Bible. That's the Greek word evil. Now I know that's, that can't be if you grew up an evangelical background, that is not what was talked about most of the time as being what was evil. It was not making discriminations against the amount of wealth and, and who you preferred relationship with in the congregation. If you did grow up like that, I want to come find that preacher. You tell me who he was and I'll shake his hand or who she was. It's evil to do that. That's what James says, to make those things. That means we need a lot of faith because it goes against our natural inclinations of survival, to be in the right tribe that has the most stuff so we have the most chance of survival. But James says this, is, this situation is so laden and potent with how we treat each other as equals that it is a chance to express righteousness or evil, right? Earlier, we read together from Proverbs 22, and it said in the first couple of verses, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver and gold. So that's what I want our church to be known for, 
more and more is when somebody says Christ City Church, the next thing that comes out of their mouth is, man, they know how to love a city. They know how to look for the cracks, the places where people are falling through, and they know how to find those people and bless them and pull them out. That's the kind of community I want us to build. It says in verse two, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. all right, there, there that is again, coming through. We are all made in God's image. James goes on in verse five and says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor. James is here citing the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. He's talking about Jesus's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount here. And he's, he's, he's recategorizing them into this ordinary situation here. I remember uh, this woman, I, I'm trying to remember her name. She lives in my neighborhood. She's lived there forever. I just saw her walking recently and she's, She's an older lady, she's disabled, she has cancer, she takes care of her grandson. And we were talking and she's like, yeah, the other day, this was a few years ago, but she said, the other day I found a $20 bill on the ground and I brought it to church and uh, I brought some change, I put 10 of it in the offering um, to bless uh, other people. I got blessed and I wanted to bless other people. And there are so many stories I could feel, I could sit down and tell you years of stories of people who are so disadvantaged, who are so generous, who have an intuitive understanding, and Jesus said they would, of the kingdom of heaven at work around us. You see, we live so often in a scarcity mentality, but there are more, there's more resources, there's more jobs available, there's more than any of us could ever need if we knew how to live in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So James says we dishonor the poor when we judge in this way, but it's not just us who are dishonored. James Baldwin again, he says this, one cannot deny the humanity of another without diminishing one's own. I think this is part of the teachings of what Jesus is saying, what the Proverbs are saying. And they say what's better than having wealth, what's better than, than having lots of resources is that when we prefer those who are by the world standards succeeding, we end up dishonoring the poor and ourselves in the process. <laughs> uh, this is a funny story I just want to tell you. I was downtown walking with some people who were visiting downtown. We were doing some work together and there was a panhandler and we walked by and I try to keep just loose dollar bills in my, in my wallet to give to panhandlers. So the decision's made before me before I ever see them. I'm just gonna give them a couple bucks and I think I had a, a dollar in my wallet and I gave it to the guy. And, uh, and I say, here you go, man. And as we were walking back, he's like, that's not enough. I need a little bit more to get you know, something to eat or whatever. And I turned around, I said, hey man, give me that dollar back then. Give it to me. And he's like, what? I said, yeah, give me that dollar back. If that's not enough for you and you only want more, give it back to me. And he's like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'll get out. And, like, and uh, that's, that's the story. Um, and uh, 
and uh, my friends who were visiting were like, oh, wow, like, okay, Jamin, he's, he's like kind of hood. He's like kind of from the streets or whatever. And uh, they retold that story recently, and it was way, there were way more details to it. You know, it grew, it grew in, 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 uh, in notoriety, I should say. Doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. I just want to share that story with y'all. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And somebody's like, okay, yeah, this is the part. Jamin's going to blast everybody who has money and make them feel bad. And No, I'm not going to do that. James is speaking in generalities here. In general, there are ultra group of wealthy corporations and people, and they do a lot of damage in the world, and that's absolutely true. And as we've learned recently, they pay almost nothing in taxes, most of them. That's a big problem. I'm very angry about that. At the same time, I do know people who are wealthy because they were blessed and, and they grew up with a certain amount of resources at their disposal, and they made good use of them, and they worked hard and they got good jobs, and they knew how to invest their money, and, and they're really generous, caring, kind, loving people. And we have some of those people in our congregation, and I'm absolutely, totally thankful for them. But what James is drawing attention to is he's saying, be careful who it is you find yourself drawn to and attracted to, because those people who have something that you want, are they not the same people who are crippling the rest of society with their greed? Be careful, be careful. Um, we're running out of time here when, uh, when we... Uh, we're looking at the slides this morning. Ben said, you excited about this sermon? You got a, got a lot of slides. So yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, yeah, I am. We'll probably have to, have to edit it down a little bit here. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to jump to the last few verses about this, this sermon. I titled it, Blessed and Highly Favored. You ever heard that phrase? How you doing, man? I'm blessed and highly favored, right? So James has a little different spin on it than the way we usually use that, doesn't he? Uh, so uh, in the last few verses, James is asking us an important question. Verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, there's a lot of, a lot of argument that I heard over the years and in theological discussions about James's argument about faith being dead without belief and being saved by grace through faith, just by believing in Jesus and all these things. And I think almost all those conversations, all those debates, misses the point of what James is saying here. James is asking, is your faith alive? Is, is your faith a living, breathing thing within you? He he's, he's wants us to see, he's forcing us to look at how critical 
what we do with what we think in our heads, what we say we believe, how critical that is to experience this life of faith, of what it means to follow Jesus. You cannot, here's what I think. This is what I think. It's my opinion. I don't think you can understand the teachings of Jesus. I don't even think you can understand Christianity if you have not put your hands to the plow of serving people, of serving those who are poor, who are disadvantaged, who are needy, who are broken. I think you can only have a sort of idea, some kind of abstraction of what it means. Is why Jesus said, you've got to eat my body, drink my blood. This is not something you can just have some happy feelings about and hope to understand it. So what does this mean? To, to exhibit your faith. Faith by nature is about risk. We don't take risks when we do and favor everything that the world favors. And so we don't need faith to do it. We have to take risks with how we spend our time, our finances, And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, if you give in the offering, if you support Micah, if you do these things, then God is going to bless you with material wealth. Because see, that's, that's, that's not even what the kingdom of heaven is about. It's upside down. It doesn't flow with the current of getting to be like, if you give enough, if you put it in, then God will make you the next owner of the next Amazon and you won't have to pay taxes either. You could go on a space shuttle flight to the moon, right? That, that, that is not in this text. We ain't doing the prayer of Jabez over here, all right? Some of y'all are not old enough to know what I'm talking about. I think I found that book the other day. I was going through a box of books. Somebody gave it to me when I was graduating high school. Here's, here's, here's another way that I think about to, to re-say what James said here. Got it on the slide. Faith does not come to life unless it is lived. I hope that feels a little bit scary to you because it is scary. When, when I, told, I told Becky that story, I thought of it just yesterday where I turned around and told that guy, fine, then give me the dollar back, you know. She's like, oh, you're so good at thinking on your feet and, and that kind of thing. And I, we just moved on. And in my head, I was thinking like, yeah, but I also, I'm, it's so normal for me. It's just become so normal for me to get, to get involved, to get my hands dirty. That, I'm not really having to think on my feet. I've already encountered a lot of these situations before. And I already know how to see the person past the fear that I have. And any one of us can. You can learn how to see the person Past the fear by faith. Your faith can be alive. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all of these uh, beautiful people in the congregation this morning. I pray that as we consider the teaching this morning, as we consider the scriptures that have gone forth and 
in liturgy and in preaching, that we would be filled with courage, with excitement, with desire, uh, that even in the midst of so many difficult circumstances, that we can find clarity in serving, that we can find clarity in believing that the kingdom of heaven is a step away from our choices, from our risks, from our faith. Be with us as we come to your table. Amen.